Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast for creators of any variety. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for coming back. We took a two-week break, um, a needed two-week break, recharged the batteries. Now we're back, glad to be back, and we're glad you're back. It's It's a whole lot of backs, and we like them all. The last two weeks have been chock full of things involving previous guests. Justina and I went to a stand-up show at the Bell House here in Brooklyn, and Abby Crutchfield and Josh Gondelman performed on that show. They were both fantastic, as expected. They are fantastic. And there was a bunch of other great talent on the show, so that was a lot of fun. And then also, two previous guests got married, and they married each other. Jared Harris and Lace Larrabee got married this past weekend, and I just love them so much. Congratulations. We wish you all the very best. I think that's so exciting and fun. We didn't introduce them or anything. They already were together when they both were on, but still, it's exciting and it's fun. And they are the second couple of previous guests who got married. Henry and Mari got married last July. You may remember that, and I may have mentioned it. And um, we just now need to find out What two previous guests will marry next? That's what I want this podcast to become. Just previous guests marrying other previous guests. Let's play matchmaker. Who can Molly Gaby marry? Douglas Wittick? He's, I don't know. I have no idea who's single. (laughs) I hope I'm not breaking up any relationships just so I can have this. I want to make this happen. Um, I heard that Jordan Peele heard Chelsea Peretti on an episode of Comedy Bang Bang and said, there's a 10% chance I'll marry her. I don't know if that's true um, because I heard it on Comedy Bang Bang. So there's just a good chance that that uh, uh, Scott Ackerman said it as a joke. But <laughs> if that's true, I want that for there it is. Speaking of marriage and family, today's guest is comedy writer James Breakwell, better known under the moniker Exploding Unicorn on Twitter. He writes jokes about parenting, and he blew up, no pun intended, a couple of years ago. We talk about that and his book and more. So let's get right to it. Here's my chat with James Breakwell. Where'd you come from? Like, where are you? Like, you live in Indianapolis (laughs) now, but uh, were you born and raised there? Where'd you grow up? I have been making a circuit of the I states. I was born in Iowa, spent most of my childhood in Illinois, and then uh, for college I came over to Indiana, Indiana, not Indiana. I think and I think I know what the state is called. And then uh, <laughs> I, I went to college in Indiana, met my wife in Indiana, and then we I, I stayed here for work. So I've been here ever since. Okay. And work wise, what were you doing when you? I, start, school, I, I went to I went to school uh, for English creative writing, which really leads to no job whatsoever. <laughs> I, I looking back, I have no idea what I was thinking, but I just thought it would work itself out. And towards the end of college, I had figured out I, I wanted to be a comedy writer long term, and I eventually wanted to get to the point where I could write books. And I thought the path to that was going to be uh, journalism. I wanted to be like the next Dave Barry. So oh, by the yeah. end, of, 
so my senior year in college, I got a job just as a stringer at a newspaper. And within a month, I'd work my way up to part time. And then they had somebody quit. And I was actually working full time at a city newspaper by the time I graduated from college. And I thought, this is it. This is my ladder up. Uh, and then I, I ended up quitting that job within a year. I just hated journalism. I hated it with a passion. And uh, I ended up just getting a job in a cubicle and um, thinking I would never write again. But then I uh, <laughs> I took a second look at things and, and decided, you know, maybe the way to a, to a book deal wasn't to work my way up through journalism, hating my life. Maybe I could build an Internet following on my own. So I tried blogging for a number of years. Mm -hmm. That didn't go anywhere. Then I jumped over to Twitter and that finally started getting some traction. Mm -hmm. And then I finally went viral with Twitter. Twitter and got to the point where, you know, people would publish my books and things. And that, that right. took me to the point yeah. where I am now. Yeah. I mean, you're in a good place now, too, with that. Uh, when did you start with the blogging? Like, what year was that? I think it was the very first entry was, I think, 2006. I want to say I started it, um, I actually started it between my junior and senior year in college because I was writing a column for the student newspaper. I basically, nobody wanted to write for it. No, we had no oversight. So I just wrote whatever I wanted. So I had a comedy column that like 10 people read. Mm -hmm. I was like, I got to I got to keep these 10 readers through the summer. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I started this blog. I was like, guys, come read me during the summer. And and nobody did. And then I, I, I kind of kept that going through the years. And it's kind of ebbed and flowed. And for a while, I was I was posting every day. I mean, it ended up being like three hundred thousand words long. I mean, my 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 first book was only forty thousand words long. So this thing is like you know seven times longer than my book. Um, <laughs> late, late, lately, though, um, you know, most of my my long form writing, I write a column for the Indie Star now, and then I, I I write in books and I write in tweets and stuff. So I don't I don't write in the blog so much anymore, except yeah. like set up my podcast. Yeah, yeah, I know that too. I also know that world of saying, well, let's see, how am I going to find my way uh, into what I want to do with my life? And so let me try this and let me try that. Let me, I, tried, <laughs> I tried blogging too, you know, and, and comedy writing at that. And um, probably around the same time you were talking about that, around 2006 or so. And yeah, then you and I also was a mass comm major and I was not interested in going into news at all. <laughs> <laughs> smart man, smart man. Yeah, it's, uh, what was it for you that made you not want to go into journalism? You know, I before that, the summer before that, I had, had done some reporting for my small town newspaper, and I didn't mind it at all then. And uh, I, I didn't really figure out I hated journalism until I was doing it full time, and it was too late to change. But there were just there were a number of things that made me not like it. I think the biggest one uh, was I, I don't like bothering people. And I was the night oh, yeah. cops reporter. So, I mean, my job was mainly to bother people. There was there was one time there was this guy who in, in a really bad part of town, they're like, well, they arrested this guy today. They think he killed his baby, but he's out on bail. Why don't you go knock on his door oh, and gosh. ask him for a comment? It's like, I do not want to go to the worst part of town <laughs> and ask this guy. So, dude, did you kill your baby? Like, and, and, you know, for like I was making like twelve dollars an hour. I mean, it's like I could quit this job and work at a factory yeah. and make more than I make it now. And I wouldn't have to talk to any baby murderers. I mean, that right. And there were just so many angry people. Like, I thought it would be okay if I wasn't doing comedy writing, if I was doing, like, different kinds of writing. But it was really the same story over and over again. It was somebody's angry about something. Uh -huh. And usually, and sometimes they were angry committing crimes, and those were the better stories. Usually they were there public meetings, though. Because I was kind of – I was the last reporter there in the day. I was second shift. And so I caught all the public meetings at night, the kind of thing where they have, like, nine meetings in a row for public comment. And just people go and complain about the same thing every time. It's like, oh, my God. I get here. I could write 
rewrite this entire story in the first 10 minutes of this two hour meeting of people yelling about stuff. It's like, there's, yeah. there's gotta be a better way to spend my life. So that's when I started <laughs> plotting my exit. Did you find any way to inject some humor into some of those pieces? Cause that was some of the thing. It was like, there's one area here where I can be creative and show some sort of humor and uh, you try to fit it in in that first paragraph. Were you finding ways to do that in any of those articles at the time? There was a rotating humor column that they spread out among all the younger reporters. And so every like once every other month, I got to write that. And every time I did, I would get a big response and people loved it. I would write my comedy then. But in terms of the regular articles, no, I was yeah. just I was a very useful reporter because the other the other reporters were all prima donnas. They wanted to change the world. They went in there because they oh, believed yeah. in things. And I went in there. I believed in nothing. I just wanted to be a comedy writer. So I just rolled up, did this, did the story, and got out. So I was very useful. Actually, my uh, my last column was the funniest one I wrote, and uh, they didn't publish it. The day I quit, I quit my last day there mm-hmm. was the day my last column was scheduled to run, and I, I wrote a column about why I was leaving journalism. And I didn't realize at the time I reconnected with. With my editor years later because I was I was asking him for publicity when I was promoting my first book and we were on good terms. Mm-hmm. And apparently I really I really burned almost every bridge I had with that last column. I thought I used a very light touch. Apparently people in the newsroom didn't see it that way. Wow. They did they did not run that column. Oh wow. When I was in school, I remember our professor saying, if you were getting into this because you want to change the world, get out of this. <laughs> like, don't think that way. I wish he would have talked to the people there. And you know what? There were red flags, too. Like, when I would be going around town um, reporting, mm-hmm. there I would run into so many people who were like, oh, yeah, I used to work there. Like, there were, like, there were 10 former reporters for every one current reporter. It's like, wait, what do they know that I don't? I mean, they were all – everybody was getting out. And actually, it turns out, like, I quit. And then uh, a few months later, they ended up going – it was a Gannett paper. And they ended up going through their first of many, many rounds oh, of, of playoffs. Yeah. Now, I say that. I, I went full circle. So my, originally, my goal was to get to the Indy Star and get a, uh, a newspaper column mm-hmm. there. And, um, you know, I quit, gave up on journalism right away, built up my own following. And then after my book came out, the Indy Star got in touch with me and they offered me a, co- uh, me a column. So I ended up getting to where I wanted to be anyway. But but I'm not a you know, I'm not a full time reporter. I, I just write right. a column for them occasionally. And that and that is fun. It's a joy writing for them. Um, I mean, so one of the things that struck me that you mentioned was, you know, like you have to go talk to this potential baby murderer and just talk to him, you know, and it's. That is the job, right? Like, I don't know if you've heard Someone Knows Something, that podcast, but, uh, you know, it's a CBC reporter and he's going up to people who are saying, hey, uh, you know, people who potentially killed somebody and just trying to get them to talk to him about this dead person, you know? And every time I'm listening, I'm like, he's going to be murdered. (laughs) (laughs) He's talking to the number one suspect right now. He just walked up to him on the sidewalk. This is crazy. Yeah, it's not for everybody. No, it's not. And I, you know, I didn't really have any formal journalism training, just what I'd learned through summers on my own. My college really wasn't very good. And it doesn't really prepare you for stuff like that anyway. But you've really got to... You got to have the right personality. I think it's not even so much people want to change the world. I think a lot of them, they just kind of, they want to break the news. They want to, they want to make that story happen. And that's what gives you the drive to go out there and harass these people. And I, 
I just couldn't care less about breaking that story. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did not have that yeah. killer instinct. Um, and you know what? Everybody, like all those people who did have the killer instinct there, mm-hmm. I think every one of them got out. And I don't think any of them are writing now. I think they all ended up in PR. I think oh. one's a homemaker now. I mean, we're all former journalists now. The only one who's still there is my old editor, and he's worked his way up now. And he's he's an awesome guy. I mean, he's still, yeah. he's still got that fire, but it's not for everybody. It is not for everybody. Especially if you want to do comedy, like you did, you know? Yeah, it's the worst place in the world to get to do comedy. Right. And it turns out, like, I wanted to be like Dave Barry, and it turns out mm-hmm. Dave Barry didn't work his way up as a reporter either. He was briefly in journalism. He quit and did completely different stuff and then got wrote back in as a columnist years later. So I probably oh, yeah. should have done some research for how Dave Barry became Dave Barry before trying to follow his career path. But the <laughs> lack of planning I've put into my life is kind of incredible. <laughs> well, what made you want to do comedy? Was it something that you wanted to do as a little kid? or was that something that came to you when you're in college like when did that it started it started in high school and kind of slowly started taking over my life I was thinking about this the other day I don't know when I learned to like to write well it happened sometime by the time I was in eighth grade I could just do it I don't remember anybody particularly teaching me but like the first time I started writing comedy uh was my sophomore year in high school we had this computer literacy class I'm old enough that back then they uh they assumed you didn't know how to use Microsoft Word so uh, we had an entire class on how to use Microsoft Word you don't need a class to use that you just I mean you turn it on you start typing so we had just so much downtime and so like any any good kid at a Catholic high school I used my free time in this computer literacy class for heresy and I started typing a fake book of the Bible and I emailed it to two of my friends and I and I watched them open it and I watched them laugh and it kind of mm. it kind of changed my whole perspective because I'd always had this weird quirky sense of humor and I didn't have anywhere to use it. I mean, I wasn't the class right. clown. I wasn't the guy who was going to get up on stage. But I realized I could sit back here and write things and make people laugh. Yeah. And so from there, I started sending more unsolicited emails to people. Then I started writing that column in college. And I, you know, I kind of kept gradually expanding my audience of people to write it to. And I gradually settled on the idea that I wanted to write for a living, but I, I really specifically wanted to do comedy comedy writing yes okay awesome and i i like that story and i also like that you mentioned this thing that ended up blowing up for you so you wrote that uh kind of fake version of the bible and you mentioned something in there about exploding unicorns yeah, that was the. I, I, I always say it was the first one. I think it might have actually been the second one. The very first passage from that I wrote, I think, is lost to time. But I did save the second one. And there's a there was a passage in there about unicorns filled with hydrogen, and they blew up. And that's where we get the saying, "It exploded like a unicorn." And that and that image stuck with me. I mean, that would have been I don't know, 2000 somewhere around there. And then 2006 when I started my blog, I originally titled it "Monument to Failure," which didn't have a great ring to it. My my original concept was gonna I was gonna try to get these articles published and if i failed i would put them on my blog for free instead and i figured oh, i get a lot funny. of content and then yeah. after like a week i changed it to exploding unicorn i went back to that old image and i thought hey that that has a much better ring to it and that and that brand kind of stuck with me all the way through yeah that's very similar the the monument to failure it's very funny it's also very similar to ben schwartz his online handle is rejected jokes because <laughs> he was submitting jokes to like Letterman and, and places and whatever was rejected. I guess the idea was this was rejected and I'll just post it on my thing. Um, <laughs> but now it's just kind of like, you know, this isn't rejected. You're f- just famous now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but exploding unicorn became your thing. And um, walk me through how that 
blew up for you because it was two years ago, two years ago this month, I believe, that it did go viral and you did start, you got over a, a million followers now. You've amassed that many now, but it was, the explosion happened in 2016. What precipitated that? So I, um, I had built up to about 200,000 followers just mm -hmm. gradually. I had, um, I had been writing jokes every single day religiously long before I ever made any money on it because I, I was seeing progress. I was seeing growth. So I started out writing 25 jokes a day, which is insane if you're in the joke writing sphere. It's way too many jokes. I mean, I was writing them on Christmas, on birthdays, on vacation, um, everywhere. There was a time we were up in Wisconsin and we were away from Wi-Fi and cell phone signals. And uh, every morning I would drive 10 miles to the nearest McDonald's and schedule all my jokes for the day and then drive back to the vacation. Oh, wow. So I. I just I, I wouldn't let up. And in doing that, it was, it was growing. And then I started to see a little bit of success. People would steal my jokes. And when they would steal them, they'd go viral for other people. So I knew the content was good. They yeah. just wouldn't go viral for me. Right. So I kept I kept doing that. It was growing gradually. And then um, uh, the Star Wars, The Force Awakens came out with uh, and there was an emo Kylo Ren account. And that thing exploded. I thought I could do something like that. So I made one called uh, Very Lonely Luke. And uh, along the same vein, I was going to give Luke Skywalker lines because he didn't have any lines in The Force Awakens. Mm -hmm. It was just him, you know, being crazy and lonely by himself. Right. And it turns out Twitter, Twitter has two, two things. is lonely people and people who like Star Wars. And that uh -huh. account in three weeks gained 300,000 followers. It just exploded. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so now I've... Like a unicorn, exactly. So I, I had gone viral when my jokes were stolen. I had gone viral when I was pretending to be a Jedi. I was like, I just got to keep doing this. Eventually, it's going to take off for me. And then six months after I went viral as Very Lonely Luke, I finally went viral under my own handle. And it was a BuzzFeed article that set it off. Now, I, I'd been on BuzzFeed lots of times. They do they do lists. It's pretty much all they do or the main thing they do. And you'll be top 25 parent tweets or top 25 whatever. And they really, they're not the top 25 of anything. They're just the first 25. <laughs> tweets this editor finds when they type in a keyword and those never got me a boost of any kind mm -hmm. so the, one of their editors contacted me and he's like uh, you know we want to do an article about you and I thought okay whatever I mean it, it you know, I'm not going to put much stock in this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, they, they ran it, but it was just about me. It wasn't 25 other people. These are 20 of my tweets. And each one of them had an, it was embedded. It wasn't just a dead screen cap. You click that and you came back to my account and you could find, you know, 10 or 15,000 other jokes just like that. And they, they posted that they posted it on a Saturday morning, the lowest traffic uh, day of the week on their front right. page. And I checked and I had gained 3000 followers and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And then I checked, I, and I thought that was the end of it. And I checked by noon, I'd gained 10,000 followers. Nice. Uh, by that night, I'd gained 40,000. By the end of the weekend, I'd gained 100,000. Uh, by Monday morning, I was getting, you know, emails from, from newspapers in the UK. <laughs> by the end of the week, I was, I had an agent. And by the end of the month, I was locking down a book deal. I mean, and it all, if you look at that part of it, it's like, wow, this happens so fast for you. But like, in my mind, my, my comedy writing didn't start, you know, the right. day I went viral. It started, it was the 10 years right. before right. when I was doing this for free, you know, when you're just pathologically. I, I definitely had a problem, but luckily it, it eventually took off. And I think, you know, I, and I, I don't know if I, you know, if I had not had that BuzzFeed article, I think I would have made it there eventually. I don't know what the spark would have been sitting up. I mean, I was getting growth as I went, but nothing as explosive as that. So I, mm -hmm. I really do owe a debt of gratitude for, to BuzzFeed for accelerating that. Yeah. And now you said you write 25 a day? I used to. I, I don't do that anymore. It's, it's How many impossible. were you posting a day? Were you posting? I was posting all 25 a day. Okay. Yeah. 
And that was when I figured out I, w- I needed to zero in on kid tweets and parenting tweets. I mean, when I started this, I, you know, especially when I started the blog, I started the blog before I had any kids. Mm-hmm. I was writing comedy writing for years, just about whatever in my life. Whatever, I was, yeah. And, and I couldn't build a following because, you know, nobody wants to read about the random guy who writes about random stuff. But once right. I got on Twitter, I saw that people wanted the kid jokes, specifically mm-hmm. these back and forth conversations. And I was like, okay, I'll be the dad who tweets about his four girls. And that's a, an explanation you can tell very easily to somebody else to spread word of mouth. And it's an explanation you can fit in a headline. You say, dad tweets hilarious conversations with his four girls. Like, oh, I know exactly what that is. I'll click. Uh, and that and that helped me just kind of defining yeah. what I was about. Listen, that is, I've heard time and time again for years and years now that having a specific thing that you're talking about, a specific voice or just a specific topic really will help you and because you're not just like you said talking about random stuff it's something specific that people know they can come to you for Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that, and and that made all the difference. I mean, granted, after I had zeroed in on kid tweets, it still took me years of grinding to get there, and it figured out, you know, telling a story like that in 140 characters, so now 280. I mean, there really is an art to it. I mean, there are so many people out there who I'll I'll see tweet a story, and I'm like, oh my god, you that is a great story, and you just told it wrong, and you ruined it. If you just let me rewrite that joke for you, I could have broken the internet. And I mean, my own jokes, they uh, you know, they're a mix of reality and truth and fiction, but they always kind of walk that line. They maintain the kernel of truth that people can relate to. And it took some time to figure out that was like, what is it that makes this joke true, even if it's made up? Because you can tell a completely true joke and nobody can relate to it, but then you can retell that same joke and keep the story essentially the same, but you may generalize it, make it more universal, and suddenly everybody relates. So kind of figuring out how to walk that line, that that took some time too, but once I nailed it down, that's what led to the growth. And some of that is the tough thing. It's really easy for me to get in my head. Like, I'll write something and I'm like, oh, is this uh, clear enough? And then I I start sort of, I I create too many cooks in the kitchen just in my own head. Yeah. you know, you'd think I'd know, too, what makes a good tweet. And usually I can kind of tell if it's good or bad. Um, but, but like, all of my my best ever tweets were all ones that I was like, eh, I don't know if I should tweet this or not. I'll just toss it out there and it's see how it does. That way. It, yeah, <laughs> and the borderline ones are the ones that explode. Even after all this time, you know, 16,000 jokes, and you'd think I'd know exactly what makes it work, and I'm still surprised sometimes. Yeah, I mean, you learn craft, and you have been writing for such a long time and, and learning that even in college. That craft that happens outside, that's where your mind really gets into it. But then when it's just time to write jokes and make fun of whatever, then um, it just sort of kicks in second nature. Yeah, it... I'm really good. Like once I once I figure out something that, that that's funny, like this is joke worthy. It, I can I can build it into a into a joke pretty quick. And usually it's working backwards. The most common way a joke happens is my kid says something funny. They essentially say the punchline, and it's like okay, the things leading to this punchline would not make sense to anybody else. This is a three paragraph story going here. I need to rebuild a shorter story that's essentially the same. You know, going backwards, it'll get us to this point, but the other people will understand. I mean, that's 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 how most of my jokes happen Mm -hmm. yeah and that's that is the beauty of comedy essentially i mean i I read something about a joke dimitri martin wrote and it was that same thing of it's it starts with this kernel of truth of him there was a joke about him uh uh not being able to keep a plant alive and the joke in the joke it's a cactus 
in real life, it was just plants in general. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, he didn't ever have a cactus. <laughs> he, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. But you know, you you take it there and you add that little element, and that's and that's what makes it work. And most people yeah. get that. I mean, yeah. occasionally I get people like, "Oh my God, you make up jokes. You're horrible." It's like, yeah, that's that's how comedy works, man. We got a yeah. little, we got a tiny little bit of space to pack a lot of humor in there. But it's funny though because when people just get outraged, whenever they they accuse me of just making up everything, I have people who say my kids aren't even real. But when they whenever they accuse me of lying, it's always on the tweets that are completely true always <laughs> and every time i make one up just completely off the top of my head at least one person's like oh my god my kid did that today yeah. so i'm walk i walk in that line pretty close that, that people <laughs> even they can't tell the difference yeah and like you know it's a strange thing about how people engage with comedy I, i've pointed this out before but it bears repeating as i do stand up and i do improv and people will say to stand ups it's so great how you can just do that off the top of your head and <laughs> make it up on the spot. It's like, no, we write all of this. And then do an improv show. People will walk up and like, so really, though, is it written? Do you stand <laughs> out beforehand? It's like, no, we don't. Why is it reversed? <laughs> why does why do the same comedy audience not know how this works? Yeah, but it, you know, we are embellishing things for humor because, you know. <laughs> and, and that's and that's what you do when you tell a story to your friends. I mean, if somebody goes and they tell a story that's exactly as it happened every time, that is an incredibly boring person. Yeah. You don't want to hear a photographic story. You want to hear a story that hits the key points and entertains you. That's exactly. that's what it's all about. Yeah. And I and I'm trying to relearn some, or just learn for the first time some of the skills you've got right there with the improv and the stand up. So it seems like a lot of people on Twitter, a lot of people, they come from kind of a stand-up background and then they move into comedy writing. See, I never have done stand-up. So now I'm doing the podcast more. I've got my own podcast, Wrong and Wronger, that I do with uh, my partner, Steve Olivas. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, I've got, I'm doing more YouTube videos now. Just kind of trying to learn to do that because it, now that I'm promoting books and things, I'm having to go out and perform, you know, mm -hmm. live, you know, readings and things. And these are, this is a, a skill set I don't have to fall back. And it's like, I need to, I need to learn to actually talk to people and not hide behind a keyboard anymore. Oh, yeah. So that's uh, so that's a whole different that's a whole different ball game. I don't think I'll ever go and do stand up. It seems like everybody I've ever met who's in stand up is trying to move out of stand up to something else. <laughs> it is a lot of it. It is either like I want to get a sitcom or I want to write for Seth Meyers or, or who mm -hmm. you know like whatever. Like they're they all are trying to uh, move on somehow. They're using stand up to move on from stand up. But what's good about stand-up, and this is actually what got me into doing it, was when I was writing comedy blogs and I wanted to um, learn how to be funnier in my writing, I got the only book I could find at the time, which was a book called The Comedy Bible. And in it, she writes, um, go do stand-up. Sign up for an open mic and start doing stand-up because it'll make you better at writing. But also, if you ever have to pitch things or in your case if you have to maybe do a television appearance to promote your book or a speaking engagement it'll just make you better at doing that so i would suggest you know just going up to try it out just a little bit just to see how like tight you can be and and uh just get more comfortable standing on stage and making eye contact yeah. with people and talking to them
It definitely, it definitely seems like fun. Uh, the flip side, it doesn't. I mean, it makes you a better writer to a point. But the stand-up skill and the writing skill are different. And there yes. are, I've se- there are so many stand-up comedians I've seen on Twitter who they make a living off it. I mean, they're not, mm-hmm. you know, they're not Ricky Gervais or anything, but they, uh, they, they're making a living. This is what they do full time. And you look at their tweets, and they're just, they're not very good. And then you read it, and you're like, what would that sound like on stage? Like, oh, so much of stand-up is voice and inflection and delivery. Mm-hmm. And you get on Twitter and it's not that, it's just the words. On Twitter, they're on my turf <laughs> where oh, I have no, no, right. no, no timing and no delivery yeah. and anything. I have to depend on just the words. Yeah. And I think that's why I've been able to transition so well into book writing because I don't have to worry about those other things. So now I have to go that's back true. and get the delivery and stuff as well. Yeah, for you the, have that, the language and the rhythm is the delivery in writing. Yes. Whereas in stand-up, it's tone of voice, you know, pauses that you take. Uh, things like that that you physically are doing to get people to for for it to sink in differently with people. Yes, I think we're and I I, I think that's a really good point that you make about the difference between the two. I th- I I think what stand up is good for is just making you tight and cut out what's unnecessary. So it's like yeah, you're good at editing your stuff mm-hmm. is where stand up can help you. But you're right. There's a whole other ball game when you're sitting to to write it out. Uh, because it, it does have to come across a little differently. I mean, there's certain people like Jerry Seinfeld that maybe, like, if you take word for word what he said on stage, it could probably work well, just because he's so big into, like, rhythm and, yeah. and language. But for the average stand-up, that's not necessarily the case. Like, they're not writing like that. And um, so, yeah, you're right. There are some there are some things that don't play as well on Twitter and they're like funny comics or like maybe some of the best even. But yeah, what they're saying on Twitter is like there is some sort of disconnect. Yes. Yeah. They have to tailor their message a little more. But you know what? They're 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 still making a living off their comedy. So I guess they're they're doing what works for them. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, they're they're just engaging people a little more. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> um, that's that's essentially what Twitter is for them, as opposed to like uh, what you're trying to do and what I would like to do. I would like I would love to have something, but I I think the thing that I lack is that specific sort of voice or topic uh, to to run with. But um, like you have with uh, with the, all of your work, you mentioned your first book, and you did have a book that came out this past October. And uh, I was wondering if that was the first book or if, if there was something before that book. No, that, that, that's the first one. Okay. So if publishing's funny because you, you know, you're always a year behind. Yeah. So like by the time, so my first book was only dead on the inside, a parent's guide to surviving the zombie apocalypse. And by <laughs> the time, idea for a book. <laughs> and by the time that was on store shelves, I mean, I was like in the final stages of being done with book two, like turning it in. And now I've just finished all the rounds of editing. I actually just yesterday finished the final round of co- copy editing for my second book, uh, which will be out in November. And that's, uh, bare minimum parenting the ultimate guide to not quite ruining your child so that's <laughs> and you know i haven't done like a big official announcement on twitter but i've been mentioning it on podcasts and things um the big challenge so so you know it's great to have one thing you're really known for but then the challenge from there is branching people out it's like okay you trust me for 140 characters for this specific kind of joke will you trust me to spend 14 or 15 dollars in a book will you trust right. me to, to read this web comic will you trust me to listen to this podcast 
podcast. And I've had people ask me, you know, why don't you just stick to this one kind of joke? It's like you get, you've got once you've got the audience, you've got to branch them out to other products. You've got to make yeah. them a fan of of you. Yeah. And so that's that's what I'm trying to do. That's why I do all these other projects, you know, and because that's what you're ultimately going to make a living off of. You're not going to make a living off the million people who read your jokes for free. You're going to make a living off the much smaller number who buy, you know, who buy books and who click on advertiser links and who do who do things like that. So that's that's my process now to try to yeah. kind of branch out and, and do that. And it's, it's been fun. I've been, you know, learning new skills. I'm pushing YouTube hard now. And it's, it's crazy. Every time you go to a new social network, you start from scratch. So I've got a million followers on Twitter. And every time I tweet anything, no matter how stupid, I mean, you know, you're talking minimum 80, 90,000 people will see it. And you go to YouTube and it's like, oh my God, I'm killing myself here to get 10 new followers a day. Yeah. That's, it's kind. Of, it's kind of. It's it's frustrating and refreshing at the same mm. time because then you get so excited over small number increases. And there are some days I'm like, why am I even trying this? But I remember there was a day on Twitter where I got excited when I got up to 25 followers. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody starts somewhere. You just got to You got to put in the time. You got to refine your product, and you got to keep at it. So we'll we'll see if I make it on YouTube or not. But at least it's it's been fun trying. It is another ball game, YouTube. Yes. Because yes, it is. It seems like it's a good source. For finding something that people already know about, like if it's uh, that scene from that show or movie, yeah. or if it's a, uh, a the video of the sketch from SNL, or a music video from this musician that you just heard about and you just want to hear yeah. that song, like it's really good for that kind of stuff. And also for, um, I guess if it's the things that feel kind of like mini shows, you know, like yeah, you know, like the, something that breaks down the newest episode of whatever TV show. Uh, <laughs> it seems like it's good for that stuff, but then when it's like, I want to put my comedy sketches online, it seems harder to like. Yeah, really get I've seen people who are who have double digit millions of followers on Instagram. And they have a sixteenth of that <laughs> on yeah. YouTube. So uh, it, it, it's funny, like a million followers, that, that's not equal across all platforms. Like mm-hmm. if you have a million YouTube followers, that is worth way more than a million Facebook followers or Instagram followers or anything else. I mean, YouTube per person, they're the most engaged. They're just worth the most advertisers. They're the worst, the, the worth the most in terms of getting them to take actions you want, like buying a book. Mm-hmm. Um, t- Twitter's a ways down the scale, at least monetarily. I think uh, Instagram is, is second. I mean, Facebook, might, they say Facebook's up there, but Facebook has its finger on the scale so much. You, yeah. it's it, their, their algorithms are so arbitrary with when yeah. they show people your content and when they don't. Right. Um, Instagram is much more forgiving. And, socials. and then Twitter, you know, say what you will about Twitter per follower. It might not be worth as much as other platforms, but when you put out stuff out there, I mean, it just seems much more fair. People see it. So it's not, it's not a bad place to start. I'm glad I was able to go viral on Twitter. Yeah. You know, and you're right. And once I think I found out about you because of a few people that I follow liked your tweet. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, you know, it's great, especially for comedy. It's like it was built for comedy. People use it for news and conversation, but it's really, it's for comedy because if yeah. you tweet out, you, you get a test material. If you put out a joke and it's good, people share it and it spreads. Mm-hmm. And if they don't like it, they just scroll past it and it right. fails. So you get to succeed at a large scale and fail on a small scale. And I can't think of anything more perfect for jokes. Yeah. You're, it's the it is the online equivalent to doing stand up. It is, and you know, 
and there's no gatekeepers. That's it, that's one of the one of the hard adjustments going into books and going into all this. There are gatekeepers again, like you know, you got to get publicity for your books, and then you know, like New York City and Los Angeles, the media there, they have no idea I exist, which really didn't matter until I started putting out a product. I was like, oh wait, I have to impress people again because oh, for yeah. all these years I've been on the internet and I've just been getting you know just huge amounts of followers and beating traditional media. None of that mattered. But then you go and you're like, okay, everybody has their realm. YouTube's a realm. <laughs> Print media is a realm. Publishing's a realm. You gotta. Every, everybody has their sphere, and when you go in there, you got to deal with their gatekeepers. Yeah. What sort of advice would you give? And you've already given a lot of good advice. I feel so. There may not be anything that to really add that's as tangible as what you've already said. But what sort of advice would you give to someone who they are trying to put their jokes out on Twitter and it's not blowing up for them, you know, they're not getting those retweets, they're not getting those likes, they don't, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere, but they want to grow a fan base. You've got to pay attention to the, the metrics of your tweets, of how they're doing. And I mean, I was doing this from the time when I had 100 followers. The process is exactly the same for 100 followers that it is for a million. It doesn't take any longer to write a joke. I mean, you write the joke, you do what you think is funny, you put it out there and watch what the numbers do. But specifically, watch what they do compared to your other tweets. Don't If you have 100 followers, don't compare your likes and retweets to me. That's going to be useless. Compare your likes and retweets to your last 10 jokes and figure out what works and what doesn't. And that's going to tell you how to write a better joke, and it's going to tell you what to write jokes about. And that's how you're going to narrow it down. I mean, think if you were in a room of, you know, 100 comedians, what what four or five words would you give that would define how you were different than all of the others? What's your shtick? What makes you step out? I mean, I said the same thing to a convention of dad bloggers uh, a month or two ago, and everybody there was writing about their kids. But how do you write about your kids in a way that's different than everybody else? And so you've got to, you've got to define yourself in that way that makes you different. Then you've got to get really good at it, paying attention to those metrics and just zeroing in on it. And then you've got to just put in the time. I mean, I don't think there is a shortcut. You can't predict when you're going to go viral. You might never go viral. So you've right. just got to You've got to put in the time and you've got to, you've got to like it. I mean, if this, if this is torture for you, you know, find something else. You've got a day job. There's no reason for you to hate your side job too. I mean, the only reason I was able to do this unpaid for all those years is because this is fun for me. This is what keeps me up at night. This is what I like to do. And if you're just doing this because you think it's going to lead to money someday, but you hate it, man, there's, there are other ways to make money that are a lot easier. Yeah. That's great advice. Um, and you made this jump to long form writing. Well, I mean, you'd been doing that, but you wrote this book. Mm -hmm. uh, you were famous for your tweets, and then you got to write articles for different places. What was that jump like to sort of take your online persona and what people liked about you and find the, the right approach to a book? Well, everybody wanted me to write a book. Uh, can I swear on your podcast or not? I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. There's a book called Shit My Dad Says. Yeah. And, uh, and they all wanted me to write that book, but call it Shit My Kids Say, you know, mm -hmm. Stuff My Kids Say, whatever. Because that, uh, that, you know, Shit My Dad Says, it was a funny book and it was a bestseller. Yeah. Um, and and I, I might still write that also book someday. Also from Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, he did. He did. And now his Twitter account's pretty much dead. He only tweets once every few months. But that guy has like a deal with one of the film studios. He's out there writing scripts. He's doing just fine for himself. So he's yeah. and he had I mean, there was a TV show based on it for a while. For, yeah. 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 So I think it was made into a TV series. I think it made yeah. it. I don't think it made it to the second season. But even right. even getting one season, the odds are just astronomical. Yeah. 
So they all wanted me. Yeah. yeah, the big the big publishing houses were coming out. They all wanted me to write this, but I didn't I didn't want to write that book as my first book for a million different reasons. Mm-hmm. Probably the top one is my tweets are a mix of truth and fiction, which I can right. tell you to you, and that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But I felt like that was going to be an issue if I was going to do this traditionally published book. I didn't want to be going on interviews and having everybody like, oh my God, you're so lucky you have such funny kids. It's like, I don't think you realize how this works. <laughs> like they're not, they're not like trained dolphins who perform on command. My kids are just as funny as your kids and everybody else's kids. Right. It's just better at finding that kernel of humor and retelling that story in a way right. that everybody can relate to. I mean, that's my specialty. And framing and, it. Yeah. Yes. And I'm still, I mean, I, I, I've actually found now that I've kind of into books, I, I'm not fighting this as much, but I used to get the comment all along that, um, oh my God, you're so lucky your kids are funny. You'd be nothing without them. And it's just like, you, you are totally missing the point of how, <laughs> how this works. And it was really a danger to my career. I felt like if people thought I, I was the guy with freakishly funny kids, I wasn't going to get to that second book. Right. And then if people found out that all these trees, uh, these tweets weren't literally true, I was going to be like that guy who wrote, was it a, a, a million tiny James crack? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, I, I didn't want to end up in that situation. I also didn't want to have like a 10 page disclaimer of this is how comedy works. It's a mix right. of truth and fiction. So I'm going to, I am going to write that book someday. Um, maybe <laughs> I, I think for maybe like my fifth or sixth book, if I make it that way. See, I'm either going to write it when I'm at the height of my power, when I've proven I am who I am and I can write, then I'll publish it. Or when nobody else will publish my books and I've hit the low point, I'll be like, hey guys, that one book you wanted me to write at the start, here it is. So I had to step away. I said, okay, I need to take my parenting audience, but I need to branch them into something else to prove that they need to be fans of me and not just of my kids and the things they may or may not say. (laughs) And so that's why I thought I'd segue into zombies because it was this weird, fantastical setting. But really, it was just parenting in an exaggerated (laughs) form. And when you're raising kids, you're kind of in the apocalypse every day. (laughs) And that's that's why, that's really how I came up with it. You know, the, the book, again, it's only dead on the inside, A Parent's Guide to Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse. And um, such so, a great title. <laughs> and so all these, over. <laughs> all these publishers were in touch with me. And then I, I came out with what I actually wanted to write a book about. And all those publishers disappeared. Uh, but when Bella Books came up and they wanted to do it, they're a smaller publisher out of Texas. And my agent, um, he stood by me. He was like, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm with you for this book. And he sold it the first try. And um, it, it ended up, it surprised everybody. I think people had really low expectations for it. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm good at shamelessly self-promoting myself. That's how I got to where I am now. It wasn't, yeah. uh, you know, it, it wasn't for humility. So I, I ended up, um, you know, I was pushing this book and pushing this book. And then like a couple weeks before it was supposed to actually hit store shelves, Amazon went and they took a look at their metrics about who was interested in this book. And they quadrupled their order and they wiped out the entire first print run by themselves. So, I mean, before this book even hit store shelves, it was having a second printing. And all of a sudden there were like shortages. It took weeks to get the book into Canada. It's got, you know, it was published over in the UK and now they're working on translating it into French and Korean. So it's, it's done really well. And so I need to make sure I get all my future book deals locked in before I have a chance to fail. I've got to, got to build on that goodwill before people learn otherwise. Yeah. And I will say it's, interesting that people didn't jump right on it because the guide to zombie apocalypse there's another book like that and then there's also the parenting books and then a a spoof parenting book of uh a a book that was a spoof on what to expect when you're expecting called what to expect when you're expected so it just (laughs) seems like in the realm of what exists this seems like a natural fit and so I'm surprised that, partly surprised that they didn't jump on it, but I also understand that 
some people in the business want to know they just want to see what they already know like they want to see almost the same yeah. thing because they know how to sell that and so you know when they say like a zombie book but he's the dad guy on twitter <laughs> like i'm sure they were like thinking and, and that it, sort yeah of too. and it really it really is a parenting book with a thin veneer of zombies over the top i mean that's really that's really what it is these are the funniest essays they wanted to write anyway but with zombies added in which made it that much better but it all it all comes back to the gatekeepers i was talking about earlier i wasn't necessarily being judged on the merits of my book i was being judged by the last five nonfiction books these people put out yeah. and they're like well nonfiction parenting books don't sell well so we we don't you know we don't want to take a chance on you for this you know except if you write the book exactly like shit my dad said because we know shit my dad said so well which is one of the great things about the smaller presses i mean they they the you know they they have the editors they have the infrastructure they have everything else they pay advances but they're not necessarily one of the big five and that makes them nimbler and that means they can you know take more risks and take a chance i mean so i had a i had a great experience with mambella books um the editing process went great they they really prioritized it and uh it, it just came together well and i actually i'm kind of grateful because I've heard some horror stories about going with the bigger publishers. I mean, don't get me wrong. If if a bigger publisher came along and the money was right, I would definitely do it. But it, it's definitely a thing when you go to a publisher that puts out hundreds of books a year, it's possible for it to just get lost in the mix. I mean, the guy – I actually listened to a podcast earlier today, and the guy who wrote Sideways, which uh, turned into that you know, that, that wine movie mm-hmm. and uh, you know was the bestseller, and then he wrote the sequel to that, and he got one of the big publishers. And according to him, he sent in his manuscript – it took them five months to get back to him with the first round of edits. Five oh, months. Wow. <laughs> this is a guy who just had a bestseller. So, yeah. I mean, those kind of things can happen. So, yeah, I, I was lucky that my first experience in the book industry was a good one. Yeah. And it's, I also think, a really good point that you make about the smaller presses being able to take a few more risks, whereas the big ones are going to say, well, let's see, you know, the. <laughs> things in this genre haven't done as well for us so we can't take that risk i've even heard that in the movie business because uh vince vaughn was saying he did a movie and they the studio wanted to make it pg-13 because the previous r comedies that they had put out didn't do well and yeah the problem was the movie that vince vaughn was making and that they originally wrote was an r-rated comedy so had to, like change it and and that when you make those sort of changes, it's just kind of hard then to make it work a lot of times. But, you know, then that fails. And then they're all looking at, well, how did things go previously? And uh, what are the sort of things we know how to market? And that stuff gets in the way. It's that problem of art getting with commerce. <laughs> it, it is. It really is. And I, w- I was lucky that I was able to sell the book that I wanted to write and that I didn't have to, you know, change it or do anything else. But yeah, the, the higher up you move, the more the more cooks there are in the kitchen. I um, mean, especially with with TV, every time thing I've read about TV, it's like if you can sell the TV rights or the movie rights, that's great. But don't get your hopes up because it's just a shot in the dark for if that's ever going to get made. I mean, they could pay millions of dollars for your rights for your book. And that's not a guarantee that anything will happen. I mean, it's yeah. it, it gets to a point. It's all luck. It's all circumstance. I mean, I had one close call with my second book. I mean, it was my, my agent had been in touch with the TV agent. And he's like, you know, something might happen or it might not happen. And I was like, all right, whatever. I'm not going to get my hopes up. And then all of a sudden, one day, I was on a I was on a Skype call with a producer. And it sounded like I was going to happen. Like, just out of nowhere, this thing that was the farthest fantasy from my mind was like, this is like a pretty sure thing. And then a few hours later... 
maybe it was the next morning, he said the, the same guy, the same producer sent me a text. He's like, yeah, I was excited about your project. But then I talked with my agent and something else came along. So we're not going to do that one. It's like, wow. And I just, after it was all done, after I went from no expectations to high expectations and no expectations again, I sat down and thought about how much money really appeared and disappeared with one text message. I was like, man, it's a good thing. I wasn't depending on that to go through to like put, you know, groceries on the table. Like oh gosh, the yeah. people who live and die like that are crazy, man. You got to You got to have multiple streams of income from this. Oh, if you yeah. if you go all in on TV, that's a that's a risky way to go. It is. Yeah. And that's a lot of reason why people go broke in the business yes. because <laughs> they'll get the um, the advance and then spend it all. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Well, it's going to be a while until you get any money again, buddy. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You got a tour and you don't have an album to tour yet. (laughs) You shouldn't have spent all that advance money. And you're right. It's the multiple streams of income also is like such a smart idea because it's just going to keep you a little sane. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's part of what's made this fun is that I've, you know, I, I haven't been dependent on any one thing. So I can say no to projects if I'm not into it. I mean, some people I know, especially because I you know I came at this from the writing side, some people get into it. And they're like, well, I want to I want to quit my day job so bad that I'll go and I'll do freelance technical writing and stuff like it's like, you know, I'm not going to go step aside from my day job and write instruction manuals. That just sounds that sounds terrible. It's like everything extra I put as I build this comedy career, I'm going to be doing these things because they're fun and they're things that I want to do in my spare time. And that's mm-hmm. what tweeting is. And that's what podcasting are. Comics are, you know, books. That's that's what that is. I, I, I don't want to take on projects that are going to be, you know, you know, boring or, you know, ethically that they don't line up with what I'm doing. And you, you do get some of those weird offers that come along. So having the ability to say no to things is probably probably the greatest asset you can have uh, going forward, just to not to not be forced to do the projects that you're not comfortable with. A lot of good advice. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because being able to say no means you have some control. Yes, absolutely. And you know what? It leads to a lot of money sometimes, too. Somebody comes along with like an ad or something you just don't care about. You're like, no, I'm not going to do that. And then out of the blue, they come back and they double their offer. And you're like, well, OK, I am going to do that. I mean, <laughs> it makes a, you real happy to do that work. Yeah. And it's like I've become a really good negotiator just because in a lot of these cases, there are things I don't necessarily need to do. And that gives you a lot of leverage. I mean, But you have to be OK with it not working out, too. You yeah. can't say no and then be devastated when they don't come back. I mean, you've got to really not Not care one way or the other. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. There's also that trick of uh, I don't want to do this kind of work and it's going to cost a lot. So I'm going to throw out an insanely high number. that's so (laughs) high. It's not that that's what it will cost for me to do it. It's so high that I'm expecting them to say no. Yes. (laughs) And if they say yes, then wow, I just made a lot of money on that deal. (laughs) <laughs> and it's kind of funny, you know, what I, with what I'm doing now, I've got, I, I never expected to be a social media influencer, which I guess is what I technically am. Like I got into this cause I wanted to write jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, you know, when, when he, somebody wants to run an ad or something, what they're really paying for is the audience, you know, and then my voice for the ad or whatever. And that's kind of totally separate from then the writing income from writing columns and writing books and all of those things. So, you know, I've, I, people will tell you that it's very, you know, it's hard to make a living just off writing. And there are 
are a lot of very good writers who are putting out books and they're kind of on the poverty line uh, despite being published. But I've kind of come at this from the other side. I've kind of got, you know, two jobs in one. So I, I will say if you're looking to get published, you're looking to do that, definitely I, I would recommend building up the audience first because you've always got that to fall back on and it, it will make your life immensely easier. Yeah. And in, if uh, something falls through and you still have that audience, then you can e- at least do Patreon or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's and that's the one thing I haven't gotten into yet. But people, there are people who make a lot of money off Patreon. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, and I, there's one person who's I've tried to get on this podcast, but she's so crazy busy. Oh, that, really? Um, she probably hasn't even read the email yet because um, <laughs> she's doing everything, and she's got a Patreon. And even with that, it's like if you donate to it, she'll make something and send it to you. And it's like, good gosh. You know, like, yeah. No wonder you haven't responded. Because <laughs> seriously, <laughs> that, she probably has not seen the email. Yeah. And that's, and I've resisted that. There have been people who have made some really strong cases for me to do that. And uh, I, I just, uh, I, I guess I don't feel bad when I'm like offering a product. Like I'm putting out all these free jokes and like now, okay, you can, you're going to enjoy the free boat jokes. You need to deal with the ad to her. You're going to enjoy the free jokes. Here's a book you can buy if you want to support me as well. I haven't gotten to the point where just pay me money every month just because, because I kind of like the f- fact that more or less I owe you nothing. And if you make yeah. me mad, it's like, you know what, you know, go, you go your own way. I, I don't need this abuse. Whereas if you're like paying me, it's like, you're my boss again. It's like, oh, I do yeah. owe you something. I see that. That that makes a lot of sense. That for some people may make them keep moving forward with it. It It's like, well, all these people are donating, so I yeah, (laughs) I I owe them something, and that's you know, like it'll keep them from uh, shutting it all down when they get a little down in the dumps. Yeah, and that's and that's one of those big risks. People who uh, who kind of go well all in too early, the ones who move to Hollywood or go wherever they're going to make it at this. When you go all in and you flame out, then a lot of times that's just kind of it. They don't go they don't go and get a day job and then do it on the side anymore. They just they just quit and they're done. I think there's a lot to be said for working your nine to five job and slowly building up your income on the side, especially since you can do that forever. Like they can't starve you out. You've got you've yeah. got food on the table and you can go ahead and put the time into building everything up on the side and then someday you'll get to the point where you're making enough money on the side where you have to make that decision it's like do i want to do two jobs my entire life do i can i make the leap to this other one it's it is it's a weird situation to find yourself in but it'll happen eventually yeah well all really good advice i feel like uh this is a good time to wrap it up with creating something together as we like to do at the end of the episodes of the podcast i am on an indie team, indie improv team, we're trying to figure out a name for our team. I'm mostly the one that's putting <laughs> a lot of thought into it. The rest of them are just like, <laughs> let's practice and have a good time with each other. But I, I like this uh, exploding unicorn, uh, how that came to be. And uh, it's a good sounding thing. It's something completely original, right? You know, like, <laughs> who hears about exploding unicorn right you know like that's a totally new thing and that's to me an essential thing you want when you are coming up with your band name or your indie improv team or something like that so is there some sort of uh thing we can do right now that can maybe help someone who is trying to come up with a name sort of spark some ideas 
Um, you know, you can always go with the with the animal or the character in a weird situation. You know, take something like the exploding unicorn. <laughs> what do unicorns do? And then you make you you put the adjective in front of them. Something they don't do. They typically don't explode. Now people think of them exploding. <laughs> right. I've definitely marred unicorns forever. So you can go that way. I'd say the biggest thing when you're doing it is make sure just whatever you come up with, start googling things. Because uh-huh. <laughs> there's so like when I, I ran into this when we were thinking of names for our podcast, it's wrong and wronger. But at first we wanted to call it Moot Point, and we thought we were in the clear, and we. We didn't Google it enough. And there was like some Swedish band with that exact name. So yeah. make make sure there's nothing on Google and make sure the domain is free because somebody's going to squat on that domain and make you pay $800 for yeah. it. And you're going to change your name. If those old, any sort of like moot points a real thing. And so, yeah, someone could have already bought that domain name or someone else yeah. could be using it. Yeah, that's a really good, really good point. A point that's not moot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's. Uh, that's good that's uh that's good advice um when it came how did exploding uh, unicorns come to you i mean was it uh, in just writing free flow (laughs) free yeah i mean i've I've got that entry upstairs in a closet somewhere i printed it out to save it for posterity but they weren't that the unicorns were a throwaway line in that in that bible passage it was mostly about monkeys and penguins and i think the penguins were telepathic and trying to steal cheese i mean it was it was at that stage in comedy where i really didn't quite understand what was funny and what wasn't so i was just being as random as possible going through things and that's and that's kind of how the unicorns came out of it as well um, but yeah, I think uh, you definitely something unexpected, something memorable too, uh, and something not too long or hard to remember. I've had people they, they they come up with cool titles for their books and things, and then they can't even they can't even keep them track in their own heads. Simple, simple is always better. Yes, I love it. There it is. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, James. Thank you very much for having me. I had a blast. Uh, so good having him on. Really nice guy, James. So very thankful that he came on. And uh, also thankful that a nice guy like him is the one raising all those children. Sometimes you see people and you're like, you have a lot of kids? Oof. <laughs> but not with James. With James, you're like, oh, okay, okay, the future's in good hands <laughs> with this nice guy. Well, you should follow him on Twitter if you don't already, at Exploding Unicorn, but you have to drop the E on Twitter because how, why, somebody else somehow is at Exploding Unicorn, I guess, on Twitter. Very strange. Check out his podcast, Wrong and Wronger, on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, and find his book, Only Dead on the Inside, A Parent's Guide to Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Books a Million. Get all of this info and more by going to explodingunicorn.com. Glad to be back. Thanks for listening. And until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.